Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Combining art, fashion, science, and conservation, the exhibition Fragonard, the Fantasy Figures, brings together for the first time some 14 of the paintings known as the Fantasy Figures by Jean-Honoré Fragonard, 1732-1806. Fragonard is considered among the most characteristic and important French painters of his era, and this series, several rapidly executed, brightly colored paintings of lavishly costumed individuals, includes some of his most beloved works. The revelatory exhibition explores the many interpretations of the fantasy figures in the context of the artist's career and elucidates the development of that career, the identity of Fragonard's sitters and patrons, and the significance of his innovative imagery. To celebrate its opening on October 8, 2017, at the National Gallery of Art, Yudiko Jakal introduces the exhibition, which is on view through December 3, 2017. Thank you all for coming today. My name is Yuriko Jakal. I'm the curator of the exhibition Fragonard, the Fantasy Figures, which opens today in the West Building on the main floor. The small but dense exhibition that I'm presenting to you today unites several paintings and one drawing by the 18th century French artist Jean-Honoré Fragonard. As a painter, this artist is best known for his brilliant use of color, assured brushwork, and bold experimentation with composition and narrative. These qualities make his work accessible in a way that many old master paintings are not. His paintings are playful and unexpected. His enormous wall decorations, an example of which can be seen at the left, show beautifully dressed aristocrats in gardens overgrown with lush, monstrous vegetation. His genre paintings, like The Happy Family at the right, are lighthearted celebrations of the joys of marital and domestic bliss. This exhibition is devoted to some of Fragonard's most famous and best-loved paintings, his fantasy figures. These are works of similar dimensions rendered in a brilliant color palette using gestural brushwork. With one notable exception, they depict frontally facing figures clad in bold masquerade dress, the rough collars, large feathers, exaggerated costume jewelry, oversized rapiers, that were known in the 18th century as Spanish fashion. Such an installation is a very special event. For the majority of paintings on view have not been together in more than 30 years. The one drawing has never before been presented in a public exhibition. This exhibition also provides the opportunity to explore a mystery that has long gripped the art world. What exactly are Fragonard's fantasy figures? Much ink has been devoted to describing them and speculating about their origins. Very little is actually known. Scholars have traditionally had a handful of clues at their disposal. The representation of the guitar playing man in yellow is signed and dated. The inscription Frago 1769, just barely distinguishable on the ledge at lower right. And that should be here if you uh, want to go inspect it in the installation. This same date of 1769 was also reiterated in a label found on the reverse of this painting, a handwritten notation that reads, I quote, painted by Fragonard in 1769 in one hour's time. However, this label only dates to the 19th century, making its testimony somewhat dubious. 
This label also identifies the painting in question as a portrait, that of Louis-Richard de la Bretèche, a financier who was also the brother of one of Fragonard's most important patrons and friends. This brings us to the crux of our problem, for one of the key debates surrounding the fantasy figures has historically been whether or not these fanciful representations of costumed individuals are in fact portraits. Some, like La Bretèche, were always considered to be so. The other painting shown on my slide, the man with a broad collar turning away from a manuscript, was also thought to be a portrait. That of the distinguished French Enlightenment philosopher Denis Diderot, captured in a moment of inspired contemplation. At the same time, no 18th century source material has been found to prove the point. There is no evidence that anyone wrote about the paintings or commissioned them or that they were exhibited in Fragonard's lifetime. And with this in mind, the question inevitably arises, what self-respecting collector of the 18th century would have placed a portrait commission with Fragonard, who was not particularly known as a portraitist, when the outcome was so unconventional to say the least, heavy on virtuoso brushwork and light on representational detail? Undoubtedly with this in mind, other members of the fantasy figure series have always been considered as allegorical representations or character types, the singer, the actor, and so forth, and never as portraits. The designation traditionally assigned to this group creates further ambiguity, figure de fantasy, or fantasy figures. The term itself was only formally applied in 1960 by the art historian Georges Wildenstein, who explained that it was singularly appropriate to describe works in which the expression of the face is not stressed. Those are his words. A reference to the loose gestural manner in which the works are painted. On one level, Wildenstein's melodic term is fitting because it also references the fantasy or fancy dress worn by the sitters. But the designation is historically confused because the terms tête de fantaisie, which literally translates as fantasy head, and portrait de fantaisie, fantasy portrait, both existed in the 18th century, where they were used to describe representations of figures, often shown in fancy dress, issuing from the realm of the artist's imagination. Other descriptive monikers were used for similar works, including tête d'étude, head study, or tête de vieillard, head of an old man, the latter being an appropriate term to describe the heads undertaken by Fragonard himself, including the example shown on the far left from the Musée Jacques Morandré, as well as those by other artists who clearly served as sources of inspiration for him, Tiepolo, Rembrandt, Domenico Fetti. Here matters remained until 2012, when a thunderbolt occurred. In June of that year, a now famous drawing was discovered at an auction in Paris. Specialists now accept this sheet as an autograph work by Fragonard himself. This drawing has since disappeared into another private collection, but for scholars of 18th century French painting, its discovery was nothing short of momentous. The sheet shows three rows of thumbnail-sized sketches, 18 small drawings in total. Two lines, the top two lines, contain seven thumbnail sketches each. The last row contains only four such sketches, two in ink, those are these two shown here, and two in graphite, much fainter and rather difficult to distinguish. 
Many of these quickly rendered little designs were immediately recognizable to scholars as corresponding to one or another known painting by Fragonard. Here is a detail of one such sketch juxtaposed against its associated painting, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. As we can see, fundamental elements of the painted composition are roughly laid out in shorthand, quickly rendered fashion. On the basis of such comparisons, no less than 14 identifications were made, all as paintings that you will recognize as fantasy figures. The drawing appeared to confirm long-standing scholarly suspicions that the disparate fantasy figures were somehow linked, but it also contained some unexpected information. First, certain works not habitually identified as fantasy figures appeared on the sheet, indicating that they too were associated with this group. The representation of a dashing cavalier watering his horse, now in the Museum of Fine Arts of Barcelona, is unusual because it is the only full-length figure in the series. The Vestal is the only oval painting of the series. Other works, long thought to be integral members of the ensemble, were surprisingly omitted. This is the case with the paired portraits of the two Arcour brothers, descendants of one of France's most illustrious families. Still other works are currently unknown, holding out the prospect of new discoveries. And finally, 17 of the thumbnail sketches are annotated with scribbled names in the artist's hand. Here, in another juxtaposition of a painting with its sketch, it is clear that the written name reads Labretèche, that you can see here, as in our friend Louis Richard de Labretèche, thereby apparently confirming the identification proposed by the 19th century label. Other annotations still remain mysterious, perhaps because they seem to be abbreviations, often of very common surnames. Yet taken as a whole, their presence suggests that Fragonard appended the names of the sitters or the owners of the works, and that the fantasy figures are indeed portraits. By the same token, it became clear that certain paintings, long taken to be iconic effigies of particular individuals, are of different people altogether, leading to de-baptisms of the first order. This was most dramatically seen in the pages of the French daily Le Figaro, where it was declared that the figure traditionally considered an iconic representation of Diderot had suffered from a long-term case of mistaken identity. Here at the National Gallery of Art, the discovery of the drawing had a major impact, forever changing our perception of one of our most popular 18th century French paintings, Young Girl Reading by Fragonard. As a gift of one of the museum's primary benefactresses, Elsa Mellon Bruce, in honor of her father, Andrew Mellon, the work has always held a sentimental place in the public's affection. And beyond this historical resonance, it is quite simply delightful, a natural and straightforward depiction of a young woman absorbed in a book, her downcast gaze demure and contemplative, the bright tonalities of her dress in appealing contrast with the violet ribbons that tie up her hair. Visibly, its power to fascinate is long-standing. When it appeared for the first time in public at an auction held in Paris in 1776, the French draftsman Gabriel de Saint-Aubin deemed it fetching enough to reproduce it in the margins of his copy of the sales catalog. The text of that 1776 catalog characterized the work as, I quote, a young lady seated near a window, 
She is propped against a cushion and holds a book that seems to occupy her. As this description suggests, and as Santobelm's sketch confirms, the model does not display the engagement with a viewer that one naturally expects of a portrait. Certainly, she does not twist and turn with the performative flair of a fantasy figure. We might instead suppose the painting to represent an allegory of study, for the act of reading appears to occupy every ounce of concentration possessed of this oblivious young model. Or perhaps more simply, this is a painting about painting, an opportunity for the artist to show off his technique. Certainly, the prettiness of the girl's doll-like features presents a perfect showcase for the artist to feature the vigorous brushwork that enlivens the yellow skirt and rose-colored cushion. Thus, it was surprising to find that young girl reading had a counterpart in the sketch, in the first row, in the first sketch on the top row of the sheet. And the surprises did not end here. A close-up comparison of our painting and its corresponding drawing reveals some discrepancies. For in the drawing, the girl does not appear to be reading at all. Rather, she seems to look out at the spectator in the same manner of all of the other fantasy figures who engage with the audience directly. One sees on the drawing two dots for eyes, an inverted L shape for a nose. Other questions followed. Did the sketch correspond to a previous version of the painting? Or was it a vestige of the artist's creative process, representing an imagined composition that was never fully realized in painted form? We knew from an old x-ray that young girl reading had indeed been changed at some point, but the when and how and from what all remained unclear. Thus began a long-term investigation of young girl reading conducted as a collaborative effort between myself, Michael Swicklick of our paintings conservation department, and John, our imaging scientist. It quickly became clear that another composition does indeed exist in the paint layers beneath young girl reading. From there, our project had two major objectives, identifying this former composition underneath young girl reading and determining a time frame for the alterations that transformed the original canvas into the painting known today. A hyperspectral image, that is an advanced form of IR reflectography developed here at the gallery by John, proved that the original composition featured the head of a woman looking outward. And so you can see this head here. It also became clear that Fragonard made his change from the initial three-quarter face to the one in profile with as little effort as possible. The contours of the new head were positioned around and over those of the first one. The initial eyes were subsumed into the hair of the model of young girl reading. The initial face was obscured by the ear of the second girl. And so you can see that the eyes are positioned here on either side of this white blob, which actually corresponds to her ear in the final painting. Fragonard also clearly modified his initial costume in two ways. First, John's hyperspectral image indicates a mass of stippled marks that rise in a cloud over the model's head. And by that, I mean this shape here. The meaning of such marks are clarified by looking at the same area in raking light. And that's the image that's closest to me. We see a brushy texture and the spine of what appears to be a feather. And that shape is better elucidated by looking at a um, 
image in which the color has been heightened of the painting. And we can see that there's a very distinct feathery shape. Elemental scanning revealed dots of mercury in this area. And so the mercury map is the one closest to me. And you can see tiny little dots um, in this black mass behind her head. Mercury probably corresponds to vermilion, a red pigment. The marks are deliberately applied and seem to have corresponded, therefore, to colored pearl-shaped beads, an ornamentation seen on the hair and clothing of several of the other fantasy figures. And so if you recall the painting um, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art showing the woman holding a dog, you'll remember that they are, there are ropes of pearls both in her hair and around her neck. Second, the initial model's ruff was slightly different. When, when painting the face in profile, Fragonard left a space in reserve between the tip of the original ruffle and the new chin, possibly to create a more elegant profile than if the face was buried in the collar. So you can see that the original contour of her chin would have sat much uh, lower on her neck, whereas in the final painting, there is a distinct space here um, that really creates a very elegant profile. In order to create this effect, he was obliged to elongate the neck, and presumably to detract attention from the resulting distortion, because then, you know, if we, took, if we were to take away her ruff, her neck really would become quite long. Uh, he appears to have thickened the model's ruff, so you can see that here in the initial image, the ruff is much lower than in the final painting, um, and there also appears to be a black ribbon around her neck, and he added this bunch of ribbons behind her neck in the second campaign of painting. Our second goal was to ascertain the status of these altered elements of the composition. Did Fragonard make his modifications in the course of a routine reworking of an unsatisfactory composition, or might there be a more complicated explanation? We know, of course, that the painting was changed by 1776, when its presence at auction was recorded by Saint-Aubin. But Fragonard could also have considered his first composition a finished work. As we have seen, the new neck is slightly too long, and the current head appears proportionally too small compared with the body. This suggests that the artist pragmatically reused as much as he could of his first model, keeping repainting to a minimum. A cross-section taken from the area behind the model's head, which corresponds to the site of the former feather headdress, was examined in order to further narrow the window of time that elapsed before the composition was changed to its current state. So we know that the area behind the head, the area where there was the feather headdress, is an area of change. The sample of this area is composed, therefore, of a thick stratum of brownish-red lake, that is this um, this uh, sort of strata here, stratum here, um, overlaid with a thinner layer containing white lead and iron oxides. So this thinner layer is what's visible today to the eye. This is the top layer of paint. Uh, this is the area that's covered over the red, uh, the red lake, and um, that indicates to us that the feather headdress was red. The layers, as you can see, are extremely well differentiated. This is obviously a magnified image of a cross-section. And um, under magnification, uh, you can see that there is a distinct frontier between the two layers of paint, indicating that they, that they did not mix. Um, this means that the thickly 
painted slow-drying lake would have required at least six months and more probably a year to dry to this point where it was possible to add this top layer of paint uh, without causing an issue in the, um, in the surface. Examination under a microscope suggests that Fragonard accomplished his new painting in discrete stages. The original features of the face were blocked out with a pinkish layer of paint, and at a later moment after a second drying period, the second painting was accomplished. It thus seems justified to think of the initial composition as a work unto itself, one that is a fully fledged member of the fantasy figure series, a representation of a woman holding a book head turned outwards, wearing a large plumed headdress. And so we published our findings in Burlington Magazine in April 2015. And following this publication, we were encouraged to think more broadly towards a focused exhibition, presenting young girl reading alongside its former comrades. And so this is the exhibition that you will see in the West Building. 10 of the paintings represented on the drawing and four other fantasy figures hang alongside the drawing itself in an intense display. The organization of this exhibition and research for its catalog has gone on for the last two years. This effort has occurred within a larger context of continued debate and scholarly questions surrounding Fragonard and his figures. Over the course of this project, we engage with many of the key scholars working on Fragonard today, pulling in a range of diverse viewpoints from figures such as Marianne dupuy vacher who advised on the Burlington Magazine article, to Jean-Pierre Cousin, Carole Blumenfeld, and Satish Padiar, who contributed pieces to our catalog. Thanks to their ongoing efforts and those of other scholars, our understanding of the fantasy figures will continue to advance and evolve. For it should be said very clearly that the points of view and interpretive possibilities surrounding the fantasy figures and the drawing continue to differ radically. The names written on the sheet have not all been deciphered, and some of the identifications are still hotly discussed. Several questions continue to plague scholars. For instance, why was the gallery's painting the only one to appear on the sheet without being inscribed with a name? The function of the drawing is also open to debate. Was it created before or after the paintings, as a preparatory sketch or as a record? Did it commemorate some sort of short-lived installation plan, or was it an inventory of a completed series? For our part, the opportunity to bring these works together has enabled us to broaden the scope of our inquiry to encompass other fantasy figures. In this context, we accomplished several similar studies to those conducted on young girl reading. These results are presented in the exhibition catalog, which offers, therefore, new information on Fragonard's painterly technique and his use of grounds and supports. Thanks to our colleague, Marian Durda, senior paper conservator, we were able to suggest an order in which the artist might have made the sketches on the sheet. We also proposed an order in which he made the paintings. Ultimately, our contribution to the larger debate is a retelling of the story of the fantasy figures based upon careful examination of what concrete evidence we possess, the paintings themselves. I'll outline some of the key points of this narrative in the time that remains. What if, rather than the names of individuals, the starting point in this research we seek is a place? It would be logical to suppose that Fragonard created his figures in one central location. The light source in every composition comes from the left, as if the models were invariably positioned near the same window, that of his studio. The same items of clothing, 
a red and black cloak, a feathered hat, a high collar, a stiff ruff, make appearances in multiple compositions, suggesting that they were studio props stored on hand for painting sessions. In 1769, the year of the date on the portrait of La Bretèche, Fragonard was living in his studio, located on the first floor of the Cour Carré in the Palais du Louvre, and denoted on my map with a yellow star. He had occupied the state-funded lodging, two rooms and a mezzanine, since 1765. The studio was not luxurious, but it was free, and perhaps more important in the thick of things, near the hustle and bustle of the Palais Royal and the buzz of civilized gatherings at the homes of socialites, such as Madame Geoffrin on the Rue Saint-Honoré. It was also firmly in the heart of Paris's lively artistic community, with its intersecting currents of imitation and emulation. Seen within this heady studio environment, the conception of the fantasy figures would have been stimulated by a range of events, an array of artworks, and a stream of visitors, all factors generating a new vocabulary for the artist to draw upon and consider. For instance, Woman with the Dog clearly spoofs Marie de Médicis at her coronation in Rubens's monumental cycle, housed in the Galerie du Luxembourg in Paris a masterwork that Fragonard is known to have visited in the company of his friend and studio mate, a book illustrator named Baudouin. And so as we propose in the catalog, the painting, this painting of Woman with a Dog is riffing off of this central figure. This shows uh, Queen Marie de Médicis um, taking her vows um, as monarch. And so she's in a very similar pose to Woman with the Dog, wearing this high rough collar, a cloak uh, of ermine, similar to what this lady is wearing here, um, sleeves that are striped. Uh, her hands are held upward in a similar position. But of course, in Fragonard's painting, she is holding a little dog and looking outwards, um, you know, sort of winking at the viewer, whereas in the original Rubens painting, she's looking much more serious and taking a, a vow. At the same time, to conjecture that the fantasy figures emerged from Fragonard's studio and were not painted in the homes of the models or owners also ties them more closely to his personal and professional conflicts of the moment. In 1769, Fragonard's relationship with the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture was essentially at an end. He had joined the institution in 1752, when he was about 20, as the laureate of the Grand Prix, the highest honor available to an artist in the making. On the strength of this fellowship, Fragonard then attended the equivalent of an elite finishing school for artists and was subsequently sent to Rome to perfect his artistic formation. By 1765, Fragonard was back in Paris, where he continued his initiation into the Royal Academy by presenting his requisite admission piece. This was the exceedingly ambitious large-scale history painting known as Caracius and Caliroe, shown here, and it garnered him an immediate and brilliant success. The painting was purchased for the astounding price of 2,400 livres by the king. It was exhibited in public at the Salon of 1765, to enthusiastic praise of none other than Diderot, who discussed the picture at length in his Salon Review and predicted that Fragonard would become France's next major history painter. One immediate result of this triumph was that Fragonard was given his lodgings in the Louvre. But financial stability was not forthcoming. 
He received an installment towards the promised 2,400 livres from the crown in August 1765, but did not receive a final payment for another eight years until January 1773. And this notwithstanding repeated pleas on his behalf from the secretary of the academy. The situation became so dire that the novelist Sébastien Mercier, writing in the 1770s, noted that the artist was obliged to pawn his clothes to make ends meet. It was perhaps this first disillusionment, combined with real financial straits, that soured Fragonard on the idea of taking up further official commissions. From thenceforth, he refused every crown commission he was awarded. Even when asked to paint two subjects of his own choosing for the dining room at Versailles in 1770, he did not relent. In 1767, Fragonard disappointed not only the crown, but the Parisian public, whose members were awaiting another major painting from him at that year's Salon exhibition. Instead, he chose to show a sketch for a decorative ceiling entitled Groups of Children in the Sky, painted for a wealthy banker. Diderot, who scornfully called this painting, I quote, an omelet of children in the sky, was outraged. I quote, Mr. Fragonard, when one has a reputation, it is necessary to have a little more self-respect. The philosopher then went on to criticize one of the other works Fragonard exhibited at the same salon, his head of an old man, possibly the work shown here, issuing a sharp challenge that may be significant for our purposes. I quote, when after an immense composition that has excited the strongest sensation one only exhibits a head, I ask you yourself what it should be. Perhaps not coincidentally, Fragonard began shortly thereafter to grapple with his fantasy figures. Paintings in which he seems indeed to consider how to render the human face with the sort of emotion demanded by Diderot. Which might suggest that the philosopher, despite our recent exclusion of him as a model, has a place in the midst of these works after all. If we are to see the fantasy figures as products of this studio environment, and of an attempt at self-emancipation from the world of the academy, we might imagine that their creation equates to a strategic act of self-positioning on the part of an ambitious young artist, eager to make his mark in the Parisian art world. This would mean that the paintings would have been made with certain needs in mind, to draw attention, perhaps because of their deliberately unusual quality, to capture the imagination, to be eminently commercial. What do the physical features of the fantasy figures tell us in this regard? First, speed has always been a trademark of the fantasy figures from the 18th century onward. As we have seen, the label affixed to the verso of La Bretèche claimed that the painting was done in one hour's time. So just to remind you, this is La Bretèche. In, this is not the only testimony. In 1778, the miniaturist Peter Adolf Hall, possible model of the painting whose sketch is annotated Hale, and that is this painting here, um, which corresponds to a sketch on the drawing. Uh, the miniaturist Peter Adolf Hall drew up an inventory of his art collection in which he listed several paintings in his possession by Fragonard, including one described as a head after me, that is Hall, from the time when he painted portraits in one go. 
So from the time when Fragonard painted portraits in one go. Technically, Fragonard could not have painted his works in an hour, for close study indicates that his method involved a degree of layering over dry paint. In the place of absolute speed, therefore, we have Fragonard the showman working toward the illusion of fast and facile painting. And this image is reliant upon a honed and perfected technique. Perhaps this is why the poses of the fantasy figures are so often repeated, as examination of the paintings shown here should indicate. Why paint fast, or rather, why construct the illusion of negligent speed? In the 18th century, this type of painting was often criticized, associated in the press with recklessness, even carelessness. Yet it was also characterized as a mark of bravura, a badge of genius. In 1777, one art dealer wrote, I quote, if carefully finished paintings are pleasing on a more vulgar level, it is, certain, it is a certain class of art aficionados capable of supremely appreciating a single sketch. They seek the soul and thoughts of the man of genius that they, that they know how to see and recognize. One of Fragonard's closest friends, Labritesh's brother, observed affectionately that Fragonard was all fire and marveled at his facility. This may suggest that the fantasy figures are by an artist conscious of his reputation for speed, who wanted to be seen as painting fast. We might suppose that the label on the portrait of Labritesh reproduced an original, now lost, inscription by the artist himself, proudly affirming that he had indeed painted the portrait of his friend in one hour's time. Second, what do the sizes of the paintings tell us? The drawing indicates that Fragonard conceived of his figures in two sizes, one bust length, the other full length. So these two rows of paintings are all of very, very close dimensions, basically the same dimensions. And then this painting, um, which comes to us from Barcelona, uh, is the only one known of the works on the, the works sketched on the bottom row, and it is slightly larger than the works on the top two rows. Both sets of dimensions, the bust length and the full length, correspond to the accepted table of measurements for standard-sized canvases in the 18th century. The smaller paintings at 81 by 65 centimeters corresponded to what was known as a fixed size 25 canvas. The larger scale of the Barcelona picture cor correlates to a size 30 canvas. So standard-sized canvases are works that were pre-prepared, pre-stretched, and readily available to artists at local shops. Um, the same shops of people who sold colors. And of course, um, this eliminates a step in the process of preparing a canvas because it meant that artists did not have to stretch um, canvases, which you know physically was difficult work, in their own studio. So they didn't have to either do it themselves or pay an assistant to do it. They could go um, to a shop and for a relatively inexpensive amount of money, purchase something that was already for them to paint on. The standardization of dimensions in 18th century French art had strong commercial underpinnings, not just for artists, but also for other players in the art market. Fixing canvas size allowed frame makers to manufacture their wares without too much customization. It also enabled dealers to stock frames that could fit easily and be reusable. 
On this 18th century French art market, the size 25, the size that corresponds to these paintings, became generally accepted as the appropriate choice for portraits and representations of figures. Fragonard's decision to paint the fantasy figures on such supports must therefore reflect something about his intentions for the works. Because more often his commission paintings were done on canvases that were made to order and cut to fit specific locations. So for instance, the large scale decorative painting that I showed you at the very beginning of this lecture, which is in the National Gallery's collection, was not a standard size. It was way too big and probably meant to fit specific dimensions in the room for which it was destined. This is also the case for the large-scale decorative paintings now in the Frick collection in New York, which were specifically commissioned from Fragonard by the king's mistress, Madame du Berry. In contrast, the use of standard-sized canvases for the fantasy figures suggests that they were not made to measure. Perhaps instead, Fragonard purchased multiple canvases of the same dimensions and held them at the ready in his studio as patrons wandered in eager to be painted as fantasy figures. How much would such paintings have fetched on the art market? On the far right of the drawing, just beside the sketch labeled La Bretèche, is a small annotation that appears to be cut in the middle and partly removed. It reads two, the figure beside it may be four. While this reading cannot be confirmed with certainty because the drawing is irrevocably cut, the number 24 does have a significance in the history of the fantasy figures. The miniaturist Hall, whose portrait by Fragonard was painted in one go, mentioned that the artist charged one louis, the equivalent of 24 livres for these works. As the price of a portrait, 24 livres was surprisingly low. As a point of comparison, we should remember that Fragonard was promised 2,400 livres for his academic reception piece. How could he have afforded to offer his portraits for just a fraction of this amount? The question becomes all the more noteworthy when we consider that the period assigned to the fantasy figures, circa 1769, was one in which Fragonard's financial needs reached a fever pitch. His personal responsibilities were substantially increased first by his marriage to Marianne Girard in June of that year, then by the birth of their daughter in September, sorry, in December. All the while, he continued to await full payment from the French government for its purchase of his reception piece. Yet if we give credence to the inscription 24 on Fragonard's own graphic portrait of his fantasy figures, it appears to tell us that a low price was integral to the paintings in this series. Using inexpensive standard-sized canvases and marking his portraits as fast likenesses, Fragonard was clearly not seeking to earn a living from the fantasy figures. But in his willingness to populate the art market with them, he clearly viewed these fast, vibrant paintings as perfect advertisements of his painterly skills that would attest to his artistry from the vantage point of notable collections, and perhaps respond to the challenge thrown down by Diderot at the Salon of 1767. What is the image that results to date from the diverse observations I presented here today? We now know that the fantasy figures are bound together by ties that go beyond the fact of sharing a common author. Aesthetically, they are experimental canvases in which Fragonard perfected his brilliant use of color, free assured brushwork, and bold experimentation with composition. Thematically, they are related as well. 
highly unconventional, playful portraits made for individuals coming from surprisingly diverse parts of French society. We hope that this remarkable opportunity to view the works together will add to this list, serving an educational purpose in the true sense of the word, generating new ways of seeing the works while introducing our audiences to these paintings still shrouded in fantasy. And this brings me to a final thought. Should they be known now as portraits in Spanish dress, as some claim, believing, as we now do, that they portray real individuals clad in masquerade, so-called Spanish attire, and not anonymous or imaginary models? Anachronistic as it may seem, I suggest that the term fantasy figures continues to work on two counts. Fundamentally shaped by artistic imagination, these process-based paintings also push the boundaries of figural painting. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.